Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We took last week off because we have been in Colorado for a week. and beautiful. <laughs> we are coming to you not from the quiet of our studio space, a.k.a. the office, like we usually do. So if you hear a little bit of wind noise in the background or some birds chirping, we are up above 8,000 feet. Listening to the wind through the pine trees. It's pretty pleasant here. So we thought it would be a good time to reflect, um, do a couple of podcast episodes out here, but also mark that every year when we come out here, uh, it's an anniversary for So We Speak. So we launched So We Speak three years ago, right after we came back from this trip, and we were just talking on the on the hike over here about all the things that have happened in the last few years and all the ways that God has used So We Speak that we didn't really even imagine. And it's been pretty cool um, building relationships through people that follow our blog, podcasts, the Weekly Speak, people that we already knew that we've gotten to have great conversations with. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we probably get an email a week uh, of somebody who's said, okay, this was really a breakthrough for me when you talked about this, or this was a great encouragement, or I've used this material in teaching a lesson. I mean, one of the purposes of starting a parachurch organization, as opposed to a church, is the church has a very specific mission. Right. And there's a lot of ways to accomplish that mission. Right. But parachurches can come along and do things that you wouldn't necessarily have every week in the pulpit, you wouldn't necessarily have in a class, but things that people think about and things that help us to live a more faithful Christian life. And so one of the phrases that we've thrown around a lot is keeping you informed without being conformed. And that requires talking about current issues. Right. Um, Not just biblical exegesis, although we think that's the way that you really change, but then going from your quiet time to your Twitter feed. How does that jump take place in your worldview? And that's what we've set out to do, and it's been a great three years of doing that. So thanks to everybody who supported us. Thanks to everybody who's prayed for us, who reads, who shares. Thanks to everybody who donates and makes this possible. Absolutely. I remember three years ago you talking about and being really fired up about uh, what we call worldview. That word's a little overused. But basically, where are Christians making that link between the Scriptures and the social issues of the day, and from Sunday morning, which great things happen in churches on Sunday morning, but then the conversation at work on Monday or Tuesday. And I'm not saying churches don't do that well, but you had a passion that So We Speak could fill a niche and really focus on that, whether it's the weekly speak, which for me, I mean, I, like you, read widely. I read a lot of newspapers every day, but nothing summarizes the news in a Christian point of view like the weekly speak. The fact that uh, through donations that's able to be free uh, is just amazing to me. But that is a great way to make sense of the news. And then uh, hopefully these podcasts are also useful to provide insights into the Scripture and also how they apply. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to take a moment and reflect on some things that are on our minds as we head into year four, not just for So We Speak, but in the world in general. And I think in this podcast episode and the next one that we're going to do, both of these are centered around things that have just been on our minds. Right. What are the things that we are looking at? I mean, this is kind of the passage, the men of Issachar, who could look and understand the times. They could decipher the times. That's what we've been called to do as Christians. Not that we have to be partisan people responding to every issue that comes across the news or or that kind of thing, but we really need to be engaged with what's happening culture-wide. And so I just asked you before this uh, 
trip, if you would think of a few things that were on your mind, things that you see on the horizon, and just tell us a little bit about what you're interested in right now, what you're looking at, what you see coming down the pike. So what are you seeing? Well, I have two big things that are dominating my reading and my thinking outside of teaching, just my personal reading and thinking. And let me just start with the first one. But what I've been trying to do is, if you think back three years when this started, we didn't really see the radical change from the sexual revolution, uh, how quickly that would change. We definitely didn't see how quickly culture would move on transgender issues. Of course, no one saw COVID, but it's not so much COVID, but the authoritarian response to COVID and how that's brought certain ideas into conflict with one another. Racial unity, which of course was on everybody's mind three years ago, but it just seems like things have picked up speed. Mm -hmm. So my thinking lately has been, how do we make sense of where we are and how do we situate what's happening today in the midst of everything? But the first thought was, you know, your first thought is generally, like you're going into the Super Bowl and you're going to play an opponent who's really good and we're here trying to influence this culture for Christ and the culture is moving fast, it's very powerful, and your first instinct is to get a game plan, get a strategy. And I'd like to think about that a little bit, but you know where I first went was not to the strategy for the Super Bowl, it was back to the basics of blocking and tackling. Mm -hmm. And so what's really been on my mind, and I'm going to use three terms kind of interchangeably, if you'll permit me. But the idea of personal holiness, which we also call the process of sanctification, and, and which in and of itself is really simply acting out our faith in obedience to what God has called. You know, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, as Paul says in Ephesians mm -hmm. 4. So holiness or sanctification or more conforming my life in obedience to Christ. I'll just use all those words interchangeably. But it seems to me that I, my, my general thought is this, whatever happens in our culture, however we're called to witness, to speak the truth, to heal, to help, we will only be of value in God's plan to the extent that we are pursuing holiness. Mm -hmm. Do you, would you agree with that thesis? Yes, but I think it's a, it's a, a thesis that is uncomfortably situated in our culture right now for a couple of reasons. N number one, I think we're seeing the importance of that thesis in the high-profile failures of Christian leaders. Right. So one of the things we've experienced in the last five years, ten years, and it's not that this didn't happen before, it's that with social media, it's much more prominent. We know the details. Right. We are more exposed to celebrity pastors and celebrity teachers. As you see these people burn out, and mm -hmm. whether it's moral failure whether it's abusive leadership, you know, we have all these little baskets of things that pastors have flamed out. Right. We have all been alerted to the fact that character matters. And that kind of puts um, a little bit more distance between what's happening and what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. We would probably be more comfortable saying holiness matters. Right. And I think one of the things that um, goes with this topic on, in the big scheme of things is We've got to realize that giftedness, the ability to dazzle, especially with some of these really high-profile pastors, the ability to use your gifts to reach largely secular people right. through social media, through videos, through whatever, is never a replacement for holiness. 
Now, I say we've been reminded of that on the one hand. It's also a very grating concept on the other because we live in a culture that is completely opposed to any kind of moral restraint. Right. So to say you will not you, you, you will not be of any more value to what God's doing than you are in, in your pursuit of holiness or to say that your right. holiness is the way that God's going to use you. All of a sudden, some of us probably recoil from that and say, but God uses imperfect people. You know, God can draw straight lines with bent sticks or, you know, we have all these things that we're now conditioned to say, that sounds awfully legalistic. You know, what do you mean there's a requirement? You have to be so holy for God to use you. I thought you could just come as you are and God used imperfect people. None of us are perfect. Nobody measures up. God uses us in spite of our weaknesses, through our weaknesses. That's the other angle, I think. Mm-hmm. How would you kind of adjudicate that? Yes, I think it, I'm glad you asked that because I wouldn't want anyone to get the wrong impression because we tend to go that direction with holiness and we tend to think of it in behavioral terms. And when I speak of this, I'm not even pointing a finger at those high-profile pastors. I'm not mm-hmm. intending to be judgmental. I'm not intending to say that you must be, quote, perfect in your behavior. That's not what I'm talking about at all. And I don't think that might be legalistic, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what the scripture's talking about. If you think of the characters in the Bible who were considered holy, it's the pursuit of holiness. It's the repentance, as Augustine said, the Christian life is a life of constant repentance, constantly turning back to God. When we go off the trail and begin to follow another path, we become Uh, We're not very useful to God. So instead of being judgmental, what I really want to say is the extent to which we submit to God, again, I know these aren't popular words, we pursue holiness, we repent and constantly turn back to God, Mm -hmm. and we seek to be obedient. The extent to which we do that is the extent to which God can use us. When I look at those pastors, I'm not... Uh, condemning them. I mean, who am I to judge? I mean, we can all see what happened. But my point is not to say, oh, gee, they're bad people. My point is more to say, while that's a shame, because I know from my own personal experience, when I was farthest from God, I was not very useful. Mm -hmm. That's the point I really want to make. In order to be useful in God's kingdom plans, we must be in pursuit of holiness. Yeah, I might take a little bit harder angle on that, because I do think I I totally agree with what you're saying in terms of God loving us, God using us individually, God giving us grace. And, you know, we do look at places where Paul especially will say, I was the chief of sinners, but God showed me mercy Mm -hmm. to prove his patience. Or he says, I will exalt in my weaknesses because then God is strong. But what Paul is not doing there is saying, and so because of that, I can just not really care, live a life of sin, You know, I don't think you're saying that. But what I will say is some of these celebrity pastors who have burned out should be disqualified. And I think one of the things we have to recover is we have a lot of people who are not Christians telling Christians whether or not they can judge or whether or not they can make a moral statement on this. But the Bible is very clear. Within the church, we should be inspecting the fruit of all Christians and especially our leaders. Right. And you can certainly overdo that. And say, well, you know, I heard him make a comment that wasn't very loving. That's one of the fruit of the spirit down. And so, you know, but there are things in ministry that are disqualifying. And there are people who are very talented who the church would be better if they were not serving in a leadership position. And this is an issue of wisdom because it's very hard to know that. 
And to, to bring things full circle, I would say the best thing we can do is continue to focus on the local communities that we have right. where we are living life on life with people. We're inviting people to speak into our lives because at the end of the day, all we can really control is our own pursuit of holiness. And once you're doing that and once you're in a community of leaders, whether it's a team of elders or volunteers or a small group, if you live life with people, you watch their life, you're all pursuing God together, it will be obvious right. when there are course corrections that need to be made. And I think you know the two ditches you can fall into are never believing that anybody should ever be corrected because it's grace and God is a loving, gracious God. And then on the other hand, uh, policing everyone, right. no one can possibly be worthy. How do you think we strike the middle of those? Yeah, that's a good point. Because when I say I don't condemn those pastors, my point is not that they haven't sinned. My point is that I'm not focused on judging them. I mean, that's obvious. You know, when they've sinned, whether or not they repent, the world can see that. What I'm really more interested in is my personal holiness mm-hmm. and the holiness, the pursuit, the joint pursuit of obedience to God, constant submission to God, holiness in the community in which we serve. And I think that's how God will use us. Uh, I don't think God needs high-profile pastors. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we have some very uh, holy, high-profile pastors. I know he uses them too, but I wouldn't want anybody to think that that individual believers living a life of obedience to Christ don't matter. I think that matters more than we can imagine. I think that's the most potent power for change in the way that God has designed things to work. And there are a lot of great pastors that have huge platforms, right? And, and do great their their success is essentially based on the same thing that some nobody that nobody's ever heard of that's living faithfully is based on the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, surrendering to God, being faithful, and uh, God gets to assign the platform. Mm-hmm. But once we start to confuse platform with holiness, I think that's when we really run aground, right? And for me, it's been you know I, I saw an interview between Kerry Newhoff was interviewing Tim Keller. And you know Tim Keller has pancreatic cancer. And I'd been thinking about this quite a bit, but this just fits so nicely, and I've talked to several people about it. But basically in the interview, the first question he asked him is, well, how are you doing and how's it coming with the pancreatic cancer? And I'll shorten this. But basically Keller said, he said, you know, God, uh, instead of saying, oh, woe is me and this is terrible, he said, you know, God's done a good thing here. He said, because two words come to my mind. One is focus. Because, you know, I used to, before this diagnosis, say yes to a lot of things. And I think for the next few years I have left, which will be limited, obviously, with pancreatic cancer, which is incurable, he said, it's given me an, an ability to focus because I suspect there's something God wants to get my attention on. Mm. And the second thing he said was sanctification or holiness. He said, you know, God could have just waited a few years and I could have died in a massive heart attack. Just a surprise. Right. And he said, and that would have been fine. He said, but I now know when I'm going to die, I mean, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking. And he said, you know, I look at that as a gift from God to say, Tim, there's something I need you to do, and I need you to be more holy, Mm -hmm. more focused on submitting to me. And I was amazed when I heard that, and I thought, you know, I don't know why I'm amazed, because this is a completely biblical point of view. This is the view that Terry should have as well, is that God is doing things in my life for a purpose so that I can be prepared to serve him. And he thought Mm -hmm. that these next few years, he was given the privilege to know when he would die so that he could prepare to be useful during that time. Mm -hmm. And so that really gave me even more impetus on my personal holiness. I was going through my reading plan in 2 Corinthians, 
you may remember along about chapter four, he's talking to them about all the trials that they have had and how crushed, you know, they were, they were pressed but not crushed, you know, they were perplexed but not abandoned. He said, we despaired even of life, we thought we were going to die, and yet, you know, he gives glory to God for bringing him through, and he said, and I know God will continue to bring me through. And as I thought about that, I thought, how will I uh, endure those things without tilling the ground of holiness ahead of time? Mm-hmm. And so that also got my attention. Yeah, that's a great point because in a trial like that, a lot of times the only thing we really are thinking about is getting out of the trial. Right. But Paul especially, and and 1 Peter is this way too, Mm -hmm. makes it clear for us sometimes the trial is the point. Right. And like Tim Keller saying, no, being in this trial, I've discovered that the point is a renewed focus in holiness. Right. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people that know Tim Keller would be like, Tim, you're, I mean, come on. Man, yeah. you're already doing great. Yes. You're you're pretty holy guy. But that's not the point at all. It's what is God calling him to do in this season? Right. And what is it going to take for him to do later to be, right. that he's learning now? You know, I think a lot of people um, underestimate storing up things for right. future trials. So, for example, you know this. It's never fun to teach on suffering. But if you don't teach on suffering... Then when your people do suffer, and when you suffer, you'll you have things you have your best theology available. Right. You have things that you've thought about and prayed about before. You have passages to go to. Um, it's the same concept where you train for an event. Right. You, 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 you think about if we handled training the way that we do suffering, for example. Right. So, well, why would I suffer now if I'm just going to suffer later? Well, by going through the training now, you're preparing yourself to do something that you can't do later. And so you do this now. Right. And I do wonder how many of us should be praying. I think I should be thinking and praying about what God might call me to do in the future that I actually won't be able to do because I'm not holy enough. I'm not committed enough in my life. I'm too uh, preoccupied with worldly things. I'm too selfish. I'm too consumed with what I have going on to even notice what God might put before me. And suffering is a great way to refocus on holiness. Yeah, was it Aristotle that said man is the accumulation of his habits? And, you know, there's a certain element of truth in that, that uh, I I agree with you about suffering, but I think the same thing also applies to obedience. Little acts of daily obedience to God, saying no to temptation, saying yes to compassion, saying yes to forgiveness. Little acts of, daily acts of obedience prepare us for the larger trials of obedience as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I was reading uh, this this also kind of all comes together, but I, I went back, started rereading some John Calvin in his context. And so contextually, basically, John Calvin is protesting against the legalism, literally, of the Catholic Church and basically uh, behavior defines your relationship to God. And so Calvin, you know, protests against that and said, you're saved by grace through faith, you know, faith alone, etc. But as I go through his readings, I see an incredible consequent focus on holiness, mm-hmm. obedience. It's not that the obedience comes before the grace. It's that the grace comes before the obedience. And mm-hmm. so we tend to think of Calvin as saved by grace alone. That's true. But Calvin wrote a great deal about obedience to God, surrendering our lives, and this idea of personal holiness. He just saw it in the right order. Mm-hmm. And then, 100 years later or so, John Wesley now, John Wesley is rebelling against 
two things in the Anglican Church. One is they're going through the motions. I mean, it's just a dead ritualistic uh, religion, and as a consequence, behavior showed it. In other words, I show up on Sunday, I listen to the sermon, I do what I'm supposed to do, and then I behave however I want. And so there was no... So, so Wesley focused, in my view, on two broad things. One was love, mm-hmm. and that's because you can't just go through the motions. This is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And this is what Wesley is most known for, but what he's not as much known for is the second part, just like Calvin, where he said, I'm all about holiness. I'm all about conforming your love. Love is basically a holy love, as Cliff Sanders likes to say, and that is a love that discerns, a love that obeys. And so I saw in both of these uh, characters in their time, both getting things in the right order, the love of God first, the grace of God first, but neither of them skimping on our continued obedience and holiness. So, you know, it just kind of has been reinforced through my reading the importance of what I'm going to call personal holiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to go back to something you said a minute ago about self-denial. I think that one of the major pinch points between the church and the world, the way that God wants us to live and the way that we're accustomed to living, is self-denial. We live in an expressivist culture. So individual self-expression or, um, you know, a lot of our conversations that center around things like live your truth. You, You have to be true to yourself. You have to do you. All of this is contrary to what the the regular rhythm of the Christian life is, which is denying yourself. I think one of the biggest dangers in the church is we have bought into the sugar-coated message of the culture that when you uh, indulge yourself, you will be the happiest, you will be the fittest, you will be the most yourself. And if you have to do anything that doesn't really seem... Um, in line with who you are, then all of a sudden you're denying something essential about yourself. But the gospel basically says that you need to deny yourself. You need to deny your desires. You need to deny um, your tendencies. You need to crucify your flesh. And so you can overdo it in both directions. And this is why it's so difficult to adjudicate between these things sometimes. Uh, You have this kind of repressed live your life the way you want to, and anybody who tells you otherwise is harming you. Mm -hmm. Are there situations where that's true? Sure. There are definitely situations where that's true. Mm -hmm. For most people living in America today, is that the major problem? No. The major problem is you need to deny your flesh and submit yourself to the will of God. You know, I think this was became really true to me in college ministry, but it's true for everybody. In first or in First uh, Thessalonians, where Paul says, "This is God's will for your life, your sanctification." Right. That you would flee from sexual immorality. He goes on, be rid of anger, all these other things. It's like we spend so much time thinking, "What does God want for me?" That might be a promotion, or you know, mm-hmm. a new place to live, or a new person to date, or something. When at root, the first thing that God wants for us is to be conformed to the image of his son. You will never be fully yourself until you are following Christ. And that's something we're really losing in our dialogue with our culture because the culture says, no, you cannot be truly yourself unless you express who you truly are inside. Whereas the gospel says, you will never be truly yourself until you deny yourself and follow Jesus and conform to his image. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think the culture sets up a false dichotomy, which, by the way, I would too if I were trying to win this argument and persuade people. And the dichotomy is either you live for yourself, indulgence, or you are everybody's doorman. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Jesus, you look at Paul, you look at look at the New Testament, do you see a lot of doormats there? You really don't. And so it's a false dichotomy. What Jesus is saying in Luke 9 when he says, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, means you must be willing to say no to indulgence to something greater, the God whom you serve. When Paul said, our old self was crucified with Christ, he didn't mean we have, didn't have an identity anymore. We just didn't have that earthly indulgent identity. We have this free identity as we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. I mean, it's a freeing thing. And so I think the culture sets up a false dichotomy there and masks true freedom, which is only comes through. And anybody who's been in the military or been through strict training realizes that discipline is the key to freedom, even in a worldly sense and certainly in a sense of following Christ. So I I agree with you. I think it it is the age-old battle of will myself rule in my heart or will Christ rule in my heart? It comes down to that simple Mm -hmm. choice. Yeah, one of the things on this topic that I've been thinking about, I'm going to do a new series starting in a couple of weeks at Carlton Landing on this topic, is looking at the Gospels as holiness literature. So one of the things you see in the early church is pretty quickly the Gospels function as discipleship manuals. Mm -hmm. So the Gospels are not just biographies. They are stories about Jesus' life that that lead us to encounter Jesus and change because of that. So every time you see a picture of someone coming to Christ and having an encounter with him, whether it's Nicodemus or Bartimaeus or the centurion at the foot of the cross or the thief on the cross, whoever it is, you see them encounter Christ and something changes. Now, we don't always get to see what changes in their life. We get to see the experience they have meeting with Jesus. And the disciples serve this purpose too. You see a big transformation that takes place, depending on which gospel you're in. It's more more uh, easier to see than others. But we are instructed on what it means to be a disciple by reading these gospels. And I think sometimes we get bogged down. If you read through the Gospels, um, you get bogged down with a lot of healing stories, Mm -hmm. a lot of demon exorcism stories, a lot of teaching. Um, And we read them kind of like you read a regular biography. Okay, I'm glad to know that Jesus did these things. But instead, what we should be doing is we should be encountering Jesus. We should be following him. We should be learning what it means to be a disciple. And so every time we see one of those things, it's actually an invitation for us to grow closer to him. And so I think this is a great way for us to think about holiness because um, sometimes I call this the fear of preaching imperatives. A lot of pastors are afraid to preach imperatives because Mm -hmm. they're afraid of being accused of legalism. Right. So you go through the book of James, for example. It's almost all imperatives. There's very little connecting the dots. You do this because you've been redeemed. Instead, it's just like control your tongue. A lot of people are afraid to preach imperatives because when they're disconnected, it seems legalistic. It seems disconnected from the gospel. It seems like you're earning your salvation. But what I want to do through the gospels is show 
that the way we change is typically because we understand the relationship we're a part of, the story we're in, the goal we're pursuing, the uh, something that's worth giving ourselves for. And that's what all these encounters with Jesus demonstrate, is that there's something greater than what these people had before that they encounter in Christ. There's a different story than they thought they were in, that mm-hmm. they now realize they're playing a part in. Mm-hmm. There is a different end goal of their life than they thought was there before. There's something offered that they thought was missing. And when they encounter Jesus or when they hear his teaching, they see that. And that's what makes a difference in their life. And this is a great way for us to think about holiness, mm-hmm. is some of the reason we don't um, do the things we know God is calling us to do is because our willpower is deficient. Right. But sometimes the reason we don't do what God's calling us to do is because we don't realize what story we're in. We don't realize what we're a part of. We don't, we don't realize what God has given to us to steward for his glory. And so I, I've really been reading a lot and thinking a lot about how do you read these stories in the Gospels in a way that is transformative. How do you read the Gospels in a way that actually leads you towards holiness? Mm -hmm. That's a really good point, is reading it with the eyes of what's God trying to tell me beyond. The the last thing the Gospels are interested in is the facts of Jesus' life. The biggest thing is, is helping you understand what this means. Yeah. What is the meaning of these events? And the the biggest thing you can do is figure out what does this mean for me? In other words, I think when you encounter Christ, you realize, I've now encountered a decision point, an obligation. In other words, Christ doesn't leave me without uh, the same. I'm going to accept him. I'm going to reject him. I'm going to have to act. And I, I think that's a really good point, is encountering the Jesus of the Gospels forces us towards denial of him or uh, obedience to him, mm-hmm. holiness. It is the path to holiness. And I would say this about legalism. I know that that word gets thrown around in our culture a lot. Obeying what God told you to do is not legalism. Right. Legalism is, and I condemn it as uh, along with everyone else, legalism is saying you must do everything God told you to do before he will accept you. That's legalism. Mm-hmm. As saying, though, that By grace I have been saved through faith. And then James says, faith without works is dead. In other words, faith, real faith, demands obedience. Jesus said five times, I think, in John 14 and 15, if you love me, obey my commands. And so I do think sometimes that holds us back, and we're a little careful, like, gosh, I don't want to be legalistic. And I agree, I I don't either. But I'm never going to apologize, nor am I going to make an excuse for me to God uh, for not obeying. Right. No, you're right. And, and some of that is understanding that the reason that we're told to do things is for our good. Right. When, when you, this is another thing that you see in the Gospels is Jesus does not shy away at all from telling people to be holy. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of the time that he heals someone, he says, go and sin no more. Right. And one of the things you encounter in the Gospels is you realize that the way of life that Jesus is teaching about and the way of life that he commands and the way of life that he lives is not just an arbitrary set of rules, like God before ages past was like, you know what, I just don't think that lying is a very good thing to do. I don't really like it, so I'm going to tell you guys not to do it. It, That's kind of a capricious, arbitrary view of what God is doing. Instead, what Jesus shows is when you follow him, you live the abundant 
life. Now, sometimes you've got to redefine what the abundant life means. Right? This is kind of the difference between the prosperity gospel on one hand. It can't be my best life now. Poverty gospel on the other hand is your, your best, the best thing that could ever happen to you is that you would be face-to-face with the God of the universe. And that God cannot tolerate sin. And so he made an end of it in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so we have to reframe. When we read these gospel stories, we reframe that in our minds a little bit. I think about the rich young ruler is a really obvious example. Mm -hmm. So, which I think is funny because he is rich. He may or may not be young, and he may or may not be a ruler. (laughs) Um, But anyway, he comes to Jesus, and he has kept the law, at least in the way that he understands it. Right. And in addition to that, he has a pretty good life. He doesn't really have anything lacking, but he knows that at some point, what he has is not going to get him where he needs to go. Mm-hmm. So what what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, sell all your possessions and follow me. Now, this story can strike us as, okay, well, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to have this kind of semi-Buddhist detachment from things. Right. Things are bad. The problem with the rich young ruler was he loved his stuff too much. I don't really think that's what that story is about. I think there is an element that he loved his stuff too much because it says he went away, he was sorrowful because he had great wealth. The problem is he doesn't understand what is best for him. Right. He thinks that what is best for him is meeting his own needs. He thinks that what is best for him is having everything figured out. He thinks that what is best for him is being in the upper crust of society during that time period. But what Jesus is saying is the best thing that could ever happen for you is to lose all the stuff that you've accumulated but get to be with me. And the rich young ruler doesn't. He right. doesn't understand that. Yeah, what should it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? I think that's the application of that passage. I, I think Jesus said that because he loved him, not because he was judging him. I think he said, look, I, I love you. I want to be with you forever. But to do that, this is your, this is your path. Well, I think Jesus knew that he could not actually follow Jesus right. with that stuff. And that's why I don't think that the, the universal application there is not sell all your possessions and follow Jesus. The universal application is get rid of anything that keeps you away from following Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that comes back into an understanding that what God commands of us is not to deprive us. It's not to right. um, you know, show him how faithful we can possibly be and how much we can get rid of because we love him so much. Instead, it's the way that you're living is bankrupt. And here's the way to the abundant life. Will you follow me or not? And, you know, I think that that comes across to us, and it should, as radical. Because when you listen to Jesus and you listen to the world, Jesus sounds unbelievably radical Mm -hmm. compared to the world. Well, I want to go on to our next topic, but we'll have to do that for the next podcast. But I I want to give you the final word on this because I know you've worked a lot with actually implementing this. Mm -hmm. So not just having theoretical discussions about personal holiness, but if somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I've really had it on my heart lately that I just, I'm in the situation that Tim Keller was in. I feel like God is calling me Uh to devote more of myself to him, to be holier. What are the kinds of things that you would recommend or what advice would you give to somebody who's in that position? You know, I'm a big uh, believer in, I hate to use the community word because it's so overused, but in every one of those cases, rightly or wrongly, my prescription for myself and for everyone else is get around a, a group of like-minded people, uh, other men, other women, whatever, a small, relatively small group of like-minded followers of Christ 
and come together regularly. This is a John, by the way, I'm not inventing something John Wesley didn't invent 250 years ago, and that is to study the Word together. Uh, speak about what you're each reading together. You know, everyone commits, I'll read my Bible every day. I'll pray for each other every day. Uh, when we come together, I will have read the scriptures or read the book, and we will confess our sins to one another. And that sounds a scary thing, and I'm not talking about your deepest, darkest sins. I'm just saying being open enough to say, here's what I'm wrestling with. I could use your prayer. I could use your accountability. I could use your encouragement this week in this. I really think that's a path that is best walked with brothers and sisters in Christ who are similarly in the pursuit of holiness. And so I'm part of several of these groups, which is partly for me and partly for these other men and women in these groups. But I think that uh, God, when I talk about Christian community, that's what I mean mm -hmm. by Christian community. What, what do you think? What's been your experience? I know you've done a lot of this discipling in college, after college, have you found that approach to be effective? Yeah, community really is the key on a lot of this because you're going to conform to the people that you hang out with. That, mm -hmm. This is just an iron rule of anthropology. Right. Whoever you spend your time around, whoever captures your imagination for what your life should look like, whoever you're comparing yourself to, whoever you're um, being encouraged by, that's who you're going to look like. And so you need to get groups of people who are going to push you in the right direction. You right. need people that can speak into your life. You need people that can call you out on things. You need people that can encourage you when you're down with the right things. Right. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't have non-Christian friends. It just means right. you have to allow access to people who believe the same things you do about God, about his word, about sin, about your life. And uh, I think those can lead to a tremendous amount of change. Of course, I also think that individual time in the Word Absolutely. is important. And not, and not just reading it, uh, or not just reading a devotional, but really allowing the text to read you. Really right. praying as you're reading and surrendering, asking God what He wants to do through this text, remembering what you've read throughout the following weeks when God brings it to your mind and being sensitive to what it might be that you need to be doing. Um, and then trusting God, uh, you know, I think s sometimes we can get a little too cerebral and get down on the whole, every impulse must be the Holy Spirit, therefore just do whatever comes to your mind, right. and that's holy living. That's that's not really holy living, but I do think we can overcorrect and never do what the Spirit lays on our hearts. And so when you're in prayer, when you're reading the Bible, when you're in community, taking advantage of the opportunities that God puts before you to do something that you wouldn't normally do necessarily, but that maybe God has for you. Yeah, I think... And one of the things for leaders in particular, and everybody's a leader in some sphere, but one of my favorite characters in the Bible is the prophet Nathan, who confronted King David. And he did it in a pretty blunt way, but he did it. He'd known David. He was David's friend. He loved David. But I worry about myself. I worry about other people in positions of some authority. That there is there somebody in your life? that could say to you what Nathan said to David? Mm -hmm. Is there somebody in your life who could say, I don't think this is a good idea? And, you know, I'm, I'm worried that a lot of the men, in, at least, that I'm with who are in positions of leadership don't have anyone in their life who could do that. And I think to myself, what, what an unkindness that is mm -hmm. to not have someone in your life who could uh, call you out. Yeah, I think this brings to, to bring this conversation full circle. I think when you when you bring up the topic of holiness, 
this is a really great place to arrive. So we start out talking about, okay, we've got these celebrity pastors that are examples we're all aware of, but we also have the grading sense that any requirement might be a limitation of who I am. We're caught in the middle of this, and I like the way that you put it earlier. Obeying God is never legalism. Obeying God is never uh, limiting who you are. Obeying God is never, um, you know, uh, a bad way of expressing yourself. Mm -hmm. Instead, we need to have people in our lives that help us to stay on track with the way that we do pursue holiness, Mm -hmm. which sometimes is rebuke, sometimes it's encouragement, sometimes it's osmosis, sometimes it's just the way that God leads us in a particular moment to step out in faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And if if you want that to be true about you, you need to be around other people who are doing that. And that's really the key to pursuing holiness with other people in community, is building those kinds of relationships. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.